Uh, why have you heard to talk about Advent lately? Because I don't love Christmassy things. <laughs> so becoming a pastor kind of worked out for me because I get to be all about Advent <laughs> until actual Christmas. So I, uh, for those who've been in conversation with me, Advent is a big deal for me. Advent is not the same as Christmas. During Advent, we're waiting for Christmas. We're expecting Christmas. We're anticipating Christmas. Um, but it's not Christmas yet. And I feel like I've always had a, a bit of an anticipatory nature about me. Um, I look ahead to things a lot. Um, I have been known to have to pass along my Christmas gifts to my mom so she can hide them from me so that I don't give them to people early. Because <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait for people to open their presents from me. And uh, as a kid, another example, um, I was the kid who anticipated the discipline before it happened. And I've talked to some of you about this. Um, if my parents were going to discipline me, they would send me to my room and they would come in and I was already bawling my eyes out because I felt so terrible and I knew the discipline was coming. So I didn't even need the actual discipline. Um, I anticipated it so intensely that I punished myself in the process of waiting. Um, so I've always been like that. I look ahead to things. I look forward to things. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to be in the present. But that sort of anticipation um, is a little less intentional, I think, than what we try to do in Advent. It's a little more subconscious and maybe sometimes not so healthy um, than the anticipation that we want to live into in the four weeks before Christmas. Um, the passage that we have this morning is just brimming with hope and with joy, um, with anticipation of goodness, right? Um, over and over, we're, we're given reasons to be joyful. God has taken away your punishment. Turn back your enemy. Do not fear. God is a mighty warrior and takes great delight in you. God rejoices over you with singing. God will rescue the lame, gather the exiles, give them praise and honor in every land where they have suffered shame. There's this looking forward to such goodness, such sweetness. Um, and for those of you um, who are around in June, I preached a sermon in June um, about joy. And uh, I, it, it is not lost on me that God would set me up to preach another sermon about rejoicing. Um, at a time where I feel similarly to how I felt back in June, I don't really feel like rejoicing at the moment. Um, let's just be real. Um, not because of anything wrong with Christmas or Advent itself, um, but just life has, has brought a lot of things that kind of make me feel like, joy is not my jam right now. <laughs> but here I am, because I did not choose to preach this Sunday based on the passage. I chose based on the date, and this happened to be the passage. <laughs> Um, but back in June, I had to engage with the passage in, in a way um, that kind of it forced me to wonder what God actually meant. Because um, then I was preaching on Philippians um, 4, 4 through 9. And, and that is the passage where Paul says, rejoice always. 
And if all scripture is for all of us all the time, that meant that scripture was for me at the time. So I had to engage with that directive to rejoice always um, and consider what it meant. And I'm just going to refresh you on what, what I found out. Um, that the word used in Philippians, um, rejoice, that Greek word has a root that essentially means to lean toward grace. So to rejoice literally means to experience God's grace, to lean into God's grace. And that is what I clung to. Because that's what I needed. I didn't need someone to tell me to be happy. There are a lot of people around Christmas time who don't need someone to tell them to be happy. But I needed to lean into God's grace, the truth of God's grace, because that does not change, despite my emotions, despite my context, despite what's going on around me. That does not change, even if what's happening around us doesn't reflect that. So I get to this passage, and it's saying rejoice, and it's saying rejoice. And I was like, well, it's, this passage is from the Hebrew. It's not the same word. Maybe I can be upset about it again. <laughs> Maybe it is telling me to be happy, and then I can use that to be frustrated. Because that, you know, I kind of want to do that sometimes, right? I feel justified. So I looked up in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word alaz is the word for rejoice. And I do believe that biblical concepts throughout, you know, past languages are, are there's a continuity to them. So I think that what I learned about Philippians does matter to this passage. But the Hebrew word is about triumph. It's not about feeling happy. It's about God will triumph. And almost every time that it's used over and over in the Old Testament, it's about God will triumph. It's not about everything's great right now. It's about rejoice about what God is going to do. What God is planning for you sometime in the future. There's no don't worry, be happy. There's no, you know, pick yourself up and, and have a good time. It's a trust in who God is and what God has promised. And now maybe some of you are like, well, of course, I mean, that's what this, these verses are. They're God's promise and it's future tense. So why am I spending so much time on this? Rejoicing is hard. Rejoicing is work. Waiting for the good stuff. Waiting for things to be better. Waiting for the promises. Waiting for Jesus' birth is hard. It is work. It is not an emotion. When I had my space, <laughs> They had a little section for quotes, right? Like you had like your name and your height and your like hair color, and then you had your favorite quotes, right? And my favorite quotes was a quote that said, uh, happiness depends on what's going on around us, but joy bubbles up from deep within because of what Christ has done for us. Now, I think I agree with that, generally speaking. <laughs> But at the time, I mostly used that as a way to get myself to be more happy. I mean, let's be real. It was a cute quote on my cute MySpace background. So the people would know that I was deep, but I still cared about being happy. <laughs> right? That's mostly what it was about. 
joy that we're talking about in Advent. The joy of Advent, it's not right here, right now. It's not about what's going on around you. Literally, in the times leading up to Jesus' birth, they didn't know. God had promised them this. They had this. They didn't know it was going to be a baby in a manger. They didn't know it was going to be a man who to them probably seemed rather dull because he wasn't a big fighter or a big name or made a big to-do about all the things that they thought mattered. They didn't know. They were told to rejoice about something that they were longing for desperately. Salvation, deliverance, a Messiah. But they did not know. They just had to wait. And they were directed to rejoice while they waited. It's hard work. When I was... Uh, Prepping for this and reading this passage, the, the picture that kept coming to my mind was of the shepherds. So in Luke chapter 2, it says, When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherd said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. The shepherds had no certainty about what Jesus would do. I think sometimes we forget that. I think sometimes we think they knew what they were going to see. That they knew what Jesus was going to do. That they had this, some sort of premonition about how his life would go and how they would be saved because of, because of it. But there's no way they could have known. They knew he was there. They know that, that God had promised them a savior. But they didn't know what that baby lying in a feeding trough was going to offer them. Not fully. And I would imagine there was a little bit of confusion when the angels told them there's a baby somewhere, go and see it. And who knows, did they rejoice right away? Maybe not. They may have been like, uh, baby? Like, some of us are going to be dead before that baby can do anything worthwhile. <laughs> what? <laughs> but they rejoiced. They glorified God. They went back to their work praising God for showing them something that they did not even fully understand. But they knew that they served a God who kept promises. And we serve the same God who keeps these promises. It didn't end with Jesus. We just get to see a different part of the story because of it. They knew that that baby meant deliverance and salvation and the Messiah they'd been waiting for, even if they didn't know how. Even if they knew they would run back to the fields and things would be the same as they were when they left them. Even though Jesus isn't specifically mentioned in Zephaniah, it's clear that Jesus is the one who's going to fulfill those promises. The verse 15 
is a great example of it. The Lord has taken away your punishment, turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you, and never again will you fear any harm. Jesus came and took away our punishment. We get to see a little bit more of the manifestation of that because we have the Bible, because we have the fullness of those covenants being fulfilled. Um, but there is more. There is another return. There is more to look forward to. We don't live in complete shalom right now. So we have that to look forward to. We have the fullness of this promise to look forward to. The fullness of our punishment being taken away. The image that we've been using for our Advent series, Dave found that. It's kind of awesome. Um, I don't know where he found it, but it is a good um, example of what we were talking about when we were prepping for Advent. Um, and we were talking about this, this idea of, um, like it says up there, counterweight, a little riff on um, the spelling. Um, and it kind of, it came out of um, a conversation that we had about something really, really important called hammer throwing. <laughs> and you laugh. Um, but it is very important to me. Um, and uh, I have used it as an analogy before, and I think it's a great one because, not just because I like it, um, but when you are throwing the hammer, um, as in many other parts of life, um, you can go to the next slide, actually. Yeah, there you go. So the hammer is this. This uh, eight-pound metal ball on the end of a wire with a handle that you hold on to. And when you're throwing the hammer, you have to be intentional. Because when you combine the spinning in a circle with that eight-pound ball, um, it will pull you every which way. You have to be very intentional about the movements, very intentional about um, the direction and the speed and the steps. And... Um, you have to lean back against the weight of the hammer. So as you're throwing, it's been a while. As you're throwing, you're holding your arms out in front of you, and then the ball is even farther that way. So as you spin, it's pulling against you more and more every spin you take. And if you decide that you don't want to counter that because it's too hard, it's too much work, to offer counterweight, which is the leaning back. So when I'm standing here, I can do this. When you're throwing the hammer, you have to be like, back, pretend my foot's not there. <laughs> um, so for example, you can see that this particular throw did not go very well <laughs> because my counterweight is not back. Giving me, I'm giving a little track lesson right now. But see how, see how I'm kind of tipped forward like that? that I was letting the hammer make the decision. Somewhere in my mind, I decided it was too much work. It was too much work to counter that weight. Too much work. So I let the hammer be in charge. <laughs> and then it pulled me forward. And if that happens, you cannot direct the hammer. It's not going to go where you want it to go, and it's certainly not going to go as far as you want it to go. There is an intention and a work involved in countering 
the weight of something that is pulling against you. And it's not about getting everything right, and it's not about knowing exactly, um, you know, down to a T that you have everything absolutely perfect. It's about being present with what's going on. Because there are things that are pulling back against us, that are telling us to do things a different way, that are telling us that God's not going to keep God's promises. It's counterintuitive. Because if something pulls on you, you want to go with it. When a child grabs your hand, you follow them. You don't have to. They come up to your waist. But you do, because that's what motion does. When something pulls on you, you want to go with it. So in the season of Advent, we say we're not going to go with what's pulling us out of place. What's pulling us out of whack. What's telling us that things are not centered on Christ. That that promise may or may not come true. It's counterintuitive, but that's the waiting. That's the intentionality. That is the anticipation. When we talk about having a joy that is active, I'm talking about our anticipation and our participation. We anticipate God's coming as a child because we know that God keeps promises of joy. And part of that waiting as work is that we can't joyfully acknowledge the promise if we don't somberly acknowledge the reality. If we don't acknowledge what's going on around us. If we don't acknowledge that that sort of joy and rejoicing and purity is not here yet. It's not. I wish it were. But that's not our everyday life. Not yet. How many of you are familiar with the prophet Zephaniah? Like, yeah, I know who, who he is and what he did and where he's from. And Jimmy's like, yeah. <laughs> old, old Testament scholar in the house. Um, that not many people do. Zephaniah is um, probably quite easily one of the least known books of the Bible least known prophets. Um, but not because he was not well known in his context. Um, the book itself starts out with a short lineage and traces his lineage back to Hezekiah, the king, most likely, the king Hezekiah, which um, being put in right at the beginning like that is saying Zephaniah is a somebody. Zephaniah comes from a royal line. Zephaniah has clout, access, privilege, if you will. Zephaniah was speaking to the leaders because Zephaniah had access to the leaders. Throughout the book, um, this is really the only part about rejoicing because it's more about judgment. The first three and a half or two and a half chapters of the book um, are about all the things that Judah had done wrong, all the ways that God was going to punish them, and 
whole other host of really not so joyful things, not so enjoyable um, messages to hear about your nation, about you. Um, and the idea of being someone who had something to lose in a situation like that is not a way that I consider biblical characters very often. I think of prophets like John the Baptist, right? Like living out in the desert and people think you're weird and like your mom loves you, but like most people don't like you and what you're saying, you know, like people want to kill you, things like that. That's when I think prophets, like that's what I think about. Throughout the book, Zephaniah is dropping like this knowledge about the court system and the political realities and like all these things that imply that Zephaniah was in. Zephaniah knew the people, knew what was going on, um, probably knew some of them personally. Like Zephaniah was not out in the desert by himself. So we read about Zephaniah's acknowledgement of what was wrong before the promise of what is coming. And what was wrong was a lot. Hearing God's judgment about that would not have been a pleasant experience for the people in power. Because they're the ones who have to set the example. They're the ones that have to make the changes. They're the ones that have to acknowledge what's wrong and do something about it. They're the ones that have to receive that sort of criticism and rebuke. I cannot imagine that they were okay with that. Maybe some were more receptive than others, but I can imagine that that was a very uncomfortable situation for everyone involved, particularly Zephaniah, who had to bring that message straight from God. It was essentially a shut up and listen to the highest of the high in that time. But Zephaniah did not choose to avoid the role that he had. Zephaniah did not choose to let go of his access. Zephaniah chose to take what God had given him, that particular privilege, and do something with it so that God could offer this promise at the end. We cannot be bringers of joy if we pretend like everything is okay. We cannot be bringers of joy if we are not listening to those who don't want to hear about joy yet. We cannot be bringers of joy if we are too uncomfortable, too afraid of our own privilege to listen to those who don't have what we have. Friends, every one of us in this room has privilege. Some more than others. I have a lot of it. I am white, have stable income, highly educated. I'm able-bodied. A whole host of reasons. I have a lot of privilege, but the fact that every single one of you can be here in this room means that you have access 
kind of access that someone else does not have. And that is what we get to do with our rejoicing. We get to be that message of joy to the people around us. Not by pretending that their pain doesn't matter. Not by pretending that they should just get themselves out of it. Not by pretending that things are all going to be okay right now. But by knowing this truth. By shouting for joy at God's truth. Not just by being happy about our own goodness. Zephaniah was a godly man and might have been able to pass off the wickedness on his neighbors. Well, that doesn't apply to me. I'm a prophet. God and I, are, we're on good terms. So you all deal with your wickedness because I know I'm fine. That's not how it works, is it? Because my well-being is dependent on your well-being. There's no way to separate that. I can't be doing okay if others are not. And the joy that we know in the season of Advent is about anticipating what God is going to do for the least of these. It's about anticipating that healing that is coming. And it's about participating in the bringing of that into the now as much as we can. Waiting is work. Zephaniah was undermining hypocrisy and indifference. We cannot be indifferent. We are the reminders of why there can be rejoicing right now. Choosing to be joyful doesn't imply willful ignorance. I think it's the opposite. I think that choosing joy implies that we know that there are so many reasons, so many ways that that feels counterintuitive. It doesn't mean choosing to ignore what's happening to us or the people around us or our feelings that are coming up in reaction to those things. I want to leave you with um, a quote from an article written by Regine Spears. She's a uh, grad student in Missouri who wrote an article for um, Faith for Justice. It's an organization, and she wrote an Advent article. And I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And I'm not going to try to tell you. I'm just going to read it to you because there's no reason for me to change your words. It is possible to be both mad at your local government officials and make time for yourself to have a night out. It is possible to both stand up and protest against injustices and engage in quality self-care. It is possible to be relevant, to be informed, to be involved, and yet still have joy in the midst of it all. So why do we choose to hold fast to joy? Because today's trials are not worthy to be compared to what's coming. 
because we know the Son of God shall return again, because we know that one day we will be set free from the corruption of this world, because we know that our joy is powerful. It signals that we are actively laughing and resisting the urge to submit to the chaos around us. It signals that we came into this battle counting the cost. And we have decided to yet be joyful because we know who to look for in it. Amen? Amen. That is our joy. We know who to look for in the midst of all that is going on around us. Just like Zephaniah knew who to look for when God told him to deliver a message of justice, judgment, and restoration. Can you pray with me? God, this is just another example of how there is so much brokenness in the wake of your call to rejoice. And we may not fully understand how to do that. We may never fully understand that in this life, but we trust that you will give us what we need to rejoice in your promises, to participate in bringing your kingdom here, in bringing your shalom in the midst of all that's going on around us, in our own lives, in our families, in our community, in this nation, in this world. God, we will rejoice. We will lean into your grace. We will believe and trust that you will triumph, that there is something better and bigger, more powerful than any of the evil and the pain that we witness. Thank you for teaching us how to wait, teaching us how to anticipate, teaching us how to deepen our understanding of who you are and what you offer us. Stay close to us, God. Be near to us. Walk us through this season. Change us in ways that we cannot go back on. In the powerful and present and ongoing name of Jesus, amen. Amen.